This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Let's pray together. Lord, your church is built, our lives are built through your word, your spirit working through your word. And so, Lord, now as we prepare to open up your word, we pray that you would speak, O Lord, to us. Lord, we, we, we need you. We need your word. And so, Lord, now give us, give us a spirit of eagerness. Give us hunger and thirst for the truth of your word. Lord, may you encounter us through your word today. Lord, give us anticipation for, for what you desire to, to say to us today. Lord, rid our minds of anything that could, could cloud or distract that we just might lock in to you and what you would say to us through your word right now. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Tom Hanks, the great actor, became a director for the, the classic series Band of Brothers, uh, which, which follows uh, a group of American paratroopers in World War II all the way from their training in Georgia through the end of the, the war. And throughout the production of Band of Brothers, Hanks was in close communication with the real-life Dick Winters, Major Dick Winters, who was the commanding officer of Easy Company. And so throughout the production, he would, uh, he would send uh, the old soldier uh, some of the, the footage that was being done, and he would ask him, hey, are we getting this right? Is there anything that we're doing uh, wrong? Is there anything that we need to change? Well, when... When Major Winters was sent the episode on D-Day, word got back to Tom Hanks that, uh, that the Major was not altogether happy with what he was seeing. And so Tom Hanks called him up and he said, Major, I, I hear you're, you, don't, you don't really like the episode on D-Day. What, what did we get wrong? And the old soldier said, you're, you're making it seem like that when we landed that we didn't know what we were doing. And we knew exactly what we were doing. And even though we had been dropped outside of our landing zone, I was always confident that I could, I could lead these men to go where we needed to go and do what we needed to do. And Tom Hanks said, sir, is what you're trying to say to me, are you trying to say that what we're missing here is follow me? And Major Winter said, that's exactly what is missing. And if you ever see this series in Band of Brothers, you'll see that not only in that episode on D-Day, but throughout the whole series, a recurring theme is follow me. Now, in our text today, that's kind of what Paul is saying to Timothy. Paul, Paul is saying, son, you, you have been, you've been dropped into a situation in Ephesus that is deep spiritual warfare. It's an incredibly difficult situation that you're, that you're in. 
You've been dropped into it, but God has put you there. God has called you to be there. And God has equipped you with everything that you need to do the job. All you've got to do is just follow your commanding officer, the Lord Jesus. And he will lead you to the fight that needs to be fought. And he'll lead you to avoid becoming the shipwreck that others have become. That promise stands for you and me as well. He will lead you too to the fight that needs to be fought and, to the ship and, and away from shipwrecks that need to be avoided. I want you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to talk today about fighting well, avoiding shipwrecks. 1 Timothy 1, and we're going to look this morning at verses 18 through 20. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Follow along in your copy of God's word. Paul says, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So what do we see here in this text? First of all, we see here the fight to pursue. The fight to pursue. Let's look at verse 18 and the beginning of verse 19. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Now notice here at the beginning of verse 18 that, that Paul father-son language. He addresses Timothy as my son. And if you recall from verse 2, he addresses the letter to Timothy, my true son in the faith. The situation was that Timothy's biological father was not a believer, but the apostle Paul had become like a father in the faith to Timothy. And and in kind of going back to addressing him here in verse 18 as my, as my son, you know, Paul is kind of communicating here that, hey, listen, son, what I'm about to say is going to be incredibly serious. When I was growing up, my dad had an, had an office that was built onto our, our house. And sometimes he'd say, son, come into my office. I, I want to talk. Well, I, I knew when he said that. It was going to be serious. It didn't necessarily mean I was in trouble, although sometimes I was. But it always, it always meant that he wanted to talk about something serious. He didn't just want to chit-chat, right? This was going to be a life talk or, you know, something. It was going to be heart-to-heart serious. That's what Paul is doing here, right? Hey, son, listen up to what I'm, I'm about to, 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 to say to you. So he says here in verse 18, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction. Now, now, the word that's translated as giving here means entrusting. Son, 
I am entrusting you with this instruction. And we saw this word back in verse 11. If you look back up to verse 11, Paul was talking there about the, the, the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. Same word. I would, says Timothy, I was entrusted with the gospel. Turn over to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, at the, toward the end of the letter there, in verse 20, 1 Timothy 6, 20. Notice what Paul says to Timothy here. He says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Same word that's translated as giving here in verse 18. Timothy, you have been entrusted. I am, I'm entrusting you with this instruction. You have been entrusted with the gospel. We've all been entrusted with the gospel. Every follower of Jesus is entrusted with the gospel. So what are we to do with the gospel? First of all, we're to guard it. We're to guard the gospel. The precious treasure of the gospel must be guarded in every generation. When we see things that are messing with the purity of the gospel, when we see things that are diminishing the work of our Savior, we need to come against that. Costi Hinn, who's the nephew of, of Benny Hinn, one of the, one of the false teachers of our, our day, uh, health and wealth, gospel, prosperity, theology, all of that. Uh, Costi has written a book I, I commend to you called God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. He talks about being kind of raised in that environment and how God rescued him out of that, how God opened his eyes to the truth of the, of the real gospel. We need to guard that gospel. Anything that messes with the gospel, whether it's health and wealth theology or any, anything that, that just diminishes the work of Christ, the Bible says we've got, to guard, we've got to guard the purity of the gospel. We've got to contend for the gospel. Jude 3 says that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The body of biblical truth. Right, we, we, are, to, we are to guard that. We are to contend for that. So guard the gospel. Second, pass on the gospel. To others, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says, I passed on the gospel to you. And we must pass on the gospel to others. You know, one of the most exciting events in the Olympic Games is a four by 100 meter relay event. These, these incredible sprinters uh, that are going around the track and, and then at the end of their leg, it has to be just timed perfectly because the next sprinter takes off and they have to pass that baton in stride to the next guy. This is a picture from the 2008 Olympics in, in Beijing. And, Two of our sprinters, uh, Tyson Gay and, and Darvis Patton, that, that, that baton exchange was fumbled. You see that, that baton uh, falling to the, to the ground. When that happens in a four by 100 meter relay, it's game over. 
I mean, it's done at that point. If that, if that passing along is not done smoothly, and listen, if, how much more important is it to pass on the gospel to make sure that's successfully transmitted so that it, 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 it's, not, it's not lost? And so guard the gospel. Pass on the gospel. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2. And let's look there at, at verse 2. Key verse here in First and 2 Timothy. Paul says here to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. 2 what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit, that's the same Greek word that's uh, translated as entrust or give in other, other passages, right? Same word. Uh, commit, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's absolutely vital in the church um, that people be taught to be able to teach. Pa Paul understood. He and the other first generation of the apostles were, were dying out, right? Timothy was one day going to be gone. That, that body of truth, the gospel, must be passed on so that it could be perpetuated. So the church has always got to be making disciples who make disciples. The church has always got to be teaching and training teachers who will be able to continue and pass on the, the gospel. Now let's go back to 1 Timothy 1.18 here. And Paul says in verse 18, Timothy, my son, I'm, I'm giving you, entrusting you, committing you to you this instruction in what? In keeping with the prophecies previously made about you. What's he talking about there? So let's turn to chapter 4 and let's look at verses 13 and 14. He says there, until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. Don't neglect the gift that is in you. It was given to you through prophecy with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. So apparently what had happened in Timothy's life is that there had been a time uh, in his younger years when the, the elders, probably of his home church, uh, had laid hands on him in a worship service. Uh, there had been like a, a word of prophecy that had been given and, and either it was a confirmation of a gift that Timothy had been given or it was given to him that day. And, and from the context here of, of chapter four and verses 13 and 14, it seems to have been a gift of teaching or preaching. And that would be in accord with the, with the assignments that, that Paul would give to Timothy. He was given these assignments that required someone who was gifted to preach or teach as he took on you know, false doctrine or whatever it was. Timothy had been given this gift of teaching and preaching. And what he's doing here in chapter 1 is he's saying, hey, son, remember that time. Remember when those elders lay their hands on you. Remember how God worked in your life and re recall the gift that you have been given. 
Because I know you're in an incredibly difficult situation there in Ephesus. But here's what you need to remember. You need to remember that God has called you to it. And you need to remember that God has equipped you. He has gifted you to, do, to be where you are and to do what you are doing. And so Paul here is, is encouraging his son and the faith and exhorting him to recall that time in your life. Go back to that. So, and, and by recalling it, you may fight the good fight. Remember what God did in that time and that place. I found it so helpful in my own life to go back to significant spiritual moments and, and places where, where God worked and derive strength from that. I was called, uh, my confirmation really of the call to preach was in the fall of 1989 and I started at Southeastern Seminary in January of 1990 and I'll never forget that first night on campus I I pulled in and uh, you know it was dark and I got all my stuff out and you know got stuff in my room and after I kind of got set up that night I, I walked out on the the, the quad at uh, at Southeastern it's, it's the old campus of Wake Forest uh, University before they moved to Winston-Salem and it's a beautiful it's a beautiful campus beautiful uh, quad there in the middle and that night, I, I just walked out onto the quad. There was, it, was a cold, it was cold January, starlit night. There was not a soul around. I was alone, but not alone. <laughs> because I could just sense the power of God's spirit in just such a palpable way that night. And that night uh, just committed what was to come in my seminary education, my life in ministry, and just committing all of that to the Lord. And I just felt the power of God in, in such, such an, an immense way that night. And it's always been a source of strength. Uh, in the summer of 22, during my sabbatical, I took a day and just drove down to Southeastern one afternoon, one summer afternoon, and uh, you know, not many people there in the summer, and so it was right around late afternoon, dusk, spent about three hours just prayer walking that campus and just recalling that night, recalling my calling and, 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 and all, the way that God had worked in my life and that time and that place. And I drove home that night just so filled with the Spirit because it was, it was empowering just to, to recall you know, that time and place that God had worked. That's what Paul was saying to Timothy. You know, recall, recall that time. Recall the gift that you have been given that you may what? Fight the good fight. This is where the name of the series comes from. Recall what God has done in your life that you might fight the good fight. Now, we've, we've talked about what this means for us today. We've talked about the fact that our fight is really threefold, right? It's with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're in a fight with the world. Not in the sense of being in a fight with lost people, uh, we're called to love lost people and win lost people to, to Christ. Um, the fight, though, as far as the world is concerned, it's the fight to, to not be conformed to the ways and the patterns 
of the world. That's the, that's the fight, right? So in Romans chapter 12 and verse two, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. And, what, and the, real, the meaning there is, is, in fact, you could even translate this way. Don't let the world press you into its mold. Don't let the world conform you, press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now listen, uh, in our day, this is super important um, because the world is seeking to press us into its mold, to, to conform us. The world is preaching to you. The media is preaching to you. Hollywood is preaching to you. They're preaching to your kids, your grandkids. You know, all these issues regarding you know, sexuality and just basic human identity now at this point, they are preaching to you. Get with the program, conform. Get with the program. We cannot do it. We cannot do it. We must not do it. And listen, this doesn't mean being ugly. In fact, we must not be ugly, ever. We're to represent Christ and be Christ-like and speak the truth in love. But listen, we must speak the truth. We do it in love. But we're not going to compromise the truth. We can't. You can't let the world conform you and press you into its mold. We've got we've to fight against that. So it's, it's a fight with the world. It's a fight with the flesh. That's our own sinful nature that we all have, right? The, 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 the sinful nature and just the issues that we deal with because of our sinful nature. So there's, there's the flesh and then there's the devil. We've got a supernatural enemy that we're in a fight with. Now listen, this is a situation in Ephesus where uh, Timothy is absolutely in a situation of spiritual warfare. Let's turn to chapter four and look at verse one. Chapter four and verse one. And now the spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. He's talking about the false teaching going on in Ephesus. Listen, this is the teaching of demons. I mean, it is a situation of just intense spiritual warfare and demonic power that, that Timothy is facing in Ephesus, right? To fight with the devil, ultimately. But whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil, brothers and sisters, we must not shrink back from the fight. Fight the good fight. How? How do we do that? He tells us how to do that in verse 19. Look at it. He says, holding on, having faith and a good conscience. How do we fight the good fight? We do it with faith and a good conscience. We do it, first of all, with faith. Faith. Ephesians 6 and verse 16 says, in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That means trusting God in every situation, right? When the enemy 
comes at you, you know, whatever, whatever it is, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord, trust him in every situation. Take up the shield of faith. Tr active trust in God in every situation. Every trial, everything in life, immediately we trust the Lord, right? So we take up the shield of faith. And then in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter five, it says be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith. So when you put these two things together, right? Fighting with faith means first of all, in every situation, we're actively trusting the Lord. Whatever it is, I mean, whatever you face this week, whatever comes up, what are you gonna do? Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord, take up the shield of faith, okay? But then there's a second component of this, and that is holding on to the faith. We resist the devil firm in the faith. That means, as Jude 3 says, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It means the truth, the body of truth of Christian doctrine. It means the word of God holding on to the faith, to biblical truth. We hold on to that. We are firm in that. We cannot compromise on that. Now listen, if we're gonna hold on to the faith, it means we need to know the faith, right? I love what Kent Hughes um, says about this. Hughes says, if you love God while knowing little about him, will you love him less by knowing more about him? Of course not. The deeper the knowledge of our infinite, loving, merciful, gracious, holy God, the deeper our love will become. Right? See, we, we grow in our love for God as we grow in our knowledge of God. How does our knowledge of God grow? Through his word, right? The Bible is about his promises. It's about his character. It's about his ways and who he is, right? And the, and the deeper that you go into the word and as your knowledge of God grows, your capacity to love him, your love for him is gonna grow along, along with that. The second thing that we fight with, Paul says, is a good conscience. Now we talked a lot about the conscience when we looked at verse five. If you weren't here for that message, I encourage you to, to go back and, um, and, check that, and check that out. But we fight with a good conscience. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic monk, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And, uh, you know, Luther was a, a Catholic monk, but he had begun to teach the Bible in a local university. And as he studied Romans and other parts of scripture, he was beginning to see like there's a disconnect between what I'm reading in the Bible and you know, certain doctrines and practices of, uh, in Roman Catholicism. And, and so you know, he, 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 want, he nailed the 95 theses to the door of the church because it was basically an invitation to the church to talk about, let's talk about these things. Well, the authorities of the church didn't want to talk about these things. And so they summoned Luther uh, to the city of Worms 
in Germany and, uh, and, the, and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor was there and, uh, and Luther knew his life was possibly on the line. And basically what they wanted him to do was recant. You know, all these criticisms that he had made, you know, of the Catholic Church and everything. You, you, gotta, you gotta just say you don't believe these things anymore. Recant these things. What did Luther say? He says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against my conscience is neither safe nor salutary. Here I stand. I can do no other. Listen, the, the history of the world was changed because one man refused to violate his conscience. That was not the case with the false teachers in Ephesus. Because what we're going to see is that they had violated their conscience. <clears throat> they rejected their conscience and then they rejected the faith. So let's talk now about the failure to avoid. The failure to avoid. Let's look at the latter part of verse 19 and verse 20. He says, which some, he says, take it back here, get the, get the flow here. This is kind of like all one sentence, right? Fight the, he tells Timothy, fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked the faith. Now, the some here are the false teachers in Ephesus and, and those that they had led astray. Um, and he says here that, that some have, uh, have rejected these things. The, the word rejected here means that they have they've pushed it aside. They've, they've, they've violently pushed it, pushed it aside. And in the original here, it's clear that there was an order to this. Because what they had pushed aside, first of all, was their conscience. They rejected their conscience, and then they rejected the faith altogether and polluted it. Now, we see this over and over again in our day. I mean, over the past few years, I have seen, you know, Christian celebrity, after Christian celebrity, whether it's, you know, a former pastor or a, a Christian singer or whatever, you know, but they'll come out on social media and they'll say, you know, I want to tell everybody I no longer, I no longer believe you know, the things that I grew up believing about, uh, about uh, uh, sexuality. I no longer hold those views. Well, what views are they talking about? The views the Bible teaches. The views that Orthodox Christians have believed and taught for 2,000 years. Yeah, those views. I no longer hold those views. Just want everybody to know. And time after time, what happens is, you know, 12 months later, they're putting out another statement on social media saying... My views of faith are now evolving. And I am now in a process of deconstruction of the faith that I once held and I no longer consider myself a, a Christian. This is the pattern. 
First of all, you reject your conscience in order to be accepted by the world or to fit in with your lifestyle. You reject your conscience and then you reject the faith. That's what had happened in Ephesus. Listen, I've seen this multiple times through all my years as a pastor. You know, uh, there, there, there have been people that uh, they begin to stray, begin to talk to them, like, well, you know, I've got some, I've got some intellectual questions about, about Christianity. Mm. And sometimes that's true, but, but what I've found in, in, in most of those cases is that this is not just an intellectual thing. In fact, it's mainly not an intellectual thing. It's a moral thing. It's a lifestyle thing. There's something that's going on behind the scenes. You know, it's people cheating on their spouses or people that are involved in some sin or they just wanna run their own lives. But it's, it's ultimately, it's going back to a moral issue. And that was the case in Ephesus. William Mounts, the great scholar of First and Second Timothy, says this. He says, some have not kept their faith and conscience, but chosen to abandon them, and consequently the faith has been shipwrecked, bringing reproach upon the church. Paul also indicates that moral delinquency, not intellectual problems, is the root of the heresy. So it was then and so often it is now. But you see, it wasn't that these guys had just shipwrecked their own faith. These guys were leaders. They were like elders themselves. And so they had influence on other people. They were, they were wrecking the faith of other people. Paul says here in verse 19 that they have shipwrecked the faith. In other words, the, the purity of the gospel in Ephesus has been shipwrecked. Now, Paul knew all about shipwrecks. <laughs> He, he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five, three times I was shipwrecked. And then in Acts 27, we read about a fourth shipwreck. And if you want to read a harrowing account of what a shipwreck was like in the first century, you read Acts 27. I mean, sea travel in the first century was a risky proposition. Paul knew all about shipwrecks. And so he uses this graphic language of a shipwreck to describe what these guys had done to the cause of Christ in Ephesus. Now listen, think about Ephesus. You, you could not imagine a more spiritually dark place than the city of Ephesus. Right in the middle of town, there's the, the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana, which was just a center of paganism and idolatry in the ancient world. Ephesus was also a center of the occult. This was an incredibly spiritually dark place, but right in the middle of that darkness, a church had been planted. People had come to Christ, lives had been changed. I mean, there was a lighthouse for the gospel that was shining in this dark city, but the light is in the process of going out because of this false teaching. You know, the waters off of the Outer Banks are sometimes referred to as the graveyard of the Atlantic you know, because of the configuration of the Outer Banks. Many a ship in the old days sunk to the 
the bottom because they were wrecked on the shoals. That's why the lighthouses of the Outer Banks were just, just so important. And, and Timothy here has been sent into this scene of wreckage to help this church get on its feet. And the wreckage has come about because of these false teachers. And in verse 20, Paul names names. Look at verse 20. He says, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Now, we read about Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy 2. Turn to 2 Timothy 2. And let's look there at, at beginning with verse 16. He tells Timothy, avoid irreverent and empty speech since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have departed from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are ruining the faith of of some, the, you know, these guys are teaching that the that the resurrection of uh, believers that's going to happen when Christ comes again somehow has already happened. It's a total pollution of the truth, and, and they're leaving they're leaving wreckage in their wake. We don't know which Alexander is being referred to here. There were several Alexanders. It was a very common name. But what we do know is that these false teachers were were ruining. The faith, they were, that light of the gospel that had been shining in Ephesus, it was in the process of being put out because of these false teachers. And so, Paul had had to put out of the church these false teachers. Now, that's what he means here in verse 20 when he says that, that he's, deli- they, whom I, he's delivered them to Satan. Um, what he's talking about here is that they've been put out of the church. Now, when he says that I've delivered them to Satan, does this, mean that, does this mean that he wanted them to go to hell? No. He wanted them to be taught not to blaspheme. And so they were put out from the sphere of spiritual care and protection of the church, and they were put out into Satan's sphere into Satan's realm, which is kind of the world outside the church, with the prayer that after being buffeted by Satan for a while on the outside, that they would repent and come back to Christ, that they could once again be on the inside as as restored people. Now this is exactly what Paul teaches about church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter five as well. Uh, the, The similarities between these two passages are remarkable. So in Corinth, the situation was that there was a situation where there was uh, in-your-face, flagrant, you know, open immorality. We can assume that this person had been approached multiple times uh, and, and, and they refused to repent. They were just kind of flaunting their sin. Um, and so Paul says, listen, church, you got to deal with this. He says it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief 
and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. It's exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 1. Same thing, right? Paul is telling the church in this situation, listen, this person has got to be removed from the membership of the church. They've got to be put on the outside into Satan's realm with the hope that after being buffeted for a while on the outside by Satan, that they will once again want to come home to Christ, that they will wake up, come to their senses, be restored, or they may even need to be saved, right? That's the desire. It's always restoration, right? Paul says in verse five, right, the goal is love, right? In 1 Timothy 1, 5, he says the, the goal is always love. Sometimes love has to be tough. <laughs> but the goal is always redemption. It's always restoration, rescue, right? Listen, there's been a shipwreck in Ephesus. Timothy has been sent there on a rescue mission. John Harper was born in 1872 in Glasgow, Scotland. He was saved at the age of 14, and from the, the beginning of his Christian life, he had a zeal to tell people about Jesus. I read about this guy. I just want to be more like this guy. He had such a zeal to tell people about Christ just from the time he was a teenager. When he was in his 20s, he moved to London and was part of a, a Baptist pioneer mission society there. Kind of his full-time task was just, you know, on the streets evangelizing um, later uh, started a church in, in London. In 1912, he, uh, he was invited to come to America to Moody Church in Chicago to, to preach at a series of meetings. And so he set sail uh, with his six-year-old daughter, uh, Nana. Uh, John's wife had passed away a few years before. It was he and his little girl. And so he and Nana uh, got on board the ship to set sail for America, it was the Titanic. And we know about what happened next from, from two sources. One is from Nana, who was rescued and who lived to, to 1980, she died in 1986. And she said that that night that her dad had woken her up and he said, honey, our ship has struck an iceberg uh, and I'm going to put you on this lifeboat with some other children, and I'll be along later on. And so he put her in the lifeboat with these other kids, and she was rescued later on that night. The other source was from a young Scottish guy that a few months later, after the sinking of the Titanic, there's this, this prayer meeting that was in Hamilton, Ontario, and this young guy stands up in this meeting and he shares his testimony. And he said, this is what happened. He said, I was on the Titanic. And when the ship went down, I was holding on to a piece of the wreckage and floating in the freezing water. And a wave brought near another, another man who was holding on to a piece of wreckage like me. And this man 
called out to me and he said, hey, are you saved? And I said, no. And he said to me, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then the, another wave took him and he, he drifted away and then a few minutes later, he drifted back closer to me again and he called out to me. He said, are you saved now? And I said, no. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be. And he said, soon after that, that man lost his grip on the piece of wood that he was holding on to, and he went beneath the water. And then this young man said, there in the darkness of night, with two miles of ocean beneath me, I called out to Jesus and trusted him as my savior. Now listen, we live in a world of shipwrecks with perishing people all around us. Just like God sent Timothy, he sends you and me into that wreckage with the word of hope that people need. Guard the gospel, pass on the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the precious treasure of the gospel, the message that there's a savior who died for sinners like us on the cross, that we might be forgiven of our sins, who rose victoriously from the dead, that we might have eternal life. And Lord, you have entrusted us with that message. You have saved us by that message, and now you've entrusted it to us. Lord, help us to guard it from anything that would diminish it. Lord, help us to, to pass it on to a world that desperately needs it. As we just continue in prayer right now, it could be that you need it. You may have come into this service. You may be listening to this message, not knowing Christ as your Savior and Lord and King. Friend, God has put you in the sound of this message for a reason. It's not by accident. Turn to Jesus and trust him. Listen, he loves you like no one else loves you. And that love has been demonstrated. He died on the cross for sinners like you and me. He rose from the dead. He lives. He can change your life. He can forgive you of your sins. He can give you a new start, a new life. Turn to him. Turn from sin and self and doing life your own way apart from him. Turn to Jesus. Trust him. Put your life in his hands. Let him carry you. Let him take control right now. Christian, guard the gospel. Fight the good fight. Trust the Lord in every situation. Hold on to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Speak the truth in love. Guard the gospel, share the gospel. Live it out. And so Father, we pray for the grace to do that. 
We can only do it by the power of your spirit working in and through us. We can't do it in our own strength. And so, Lord, would you work in our lives and help us to build our lives and to always stand on the solid rock of the gospel. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Let's stand. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 